This is the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter, and I'm Chad Harrington, your host. You're about to hear from Dr. Jim Henderson about some stories of God's medical miracles. It was recorded on November 21st, all the way back in 2013. But before we get to that, I want to let you know that this podcast is sponsored by my company, Harrington Interactive Media, and we're based here in Franklin. We specialize in content marketing, which means that we help produce rich media that helps sell your product or service. So we specialize in producing and marketing podcasts and books for Franklin folks just like you. And I'd love to connect with you about your company, your organization, or your next project. So send me an email at chad at harringtoninteractive.com. And we'll start a conversation about what you need, and we'll make sure it's a good fit for you. Now for Dr. Jim Henderson's stories of God's medical miracles. About 20 years ago, my wife, who is a nurse, started going over to um, 12th uh, 12th Avenue South to a little apartment where they were really, really crowded. But anybody that didn't have medical insurance or didn't wasn't able to get medical care could go there and um, get medical care. And she says, I remember the people would be there and they'd have to sit out in the cold because they couldn't fit in. They'd have to wait outside the apartment. She said, we had an old centrifuge. She said, I remember that, which is uh, something that goes around and around. And she said, I just remember how it rattled and made a lot of noise. Well, today, Siloam, which was started back about 20, 25 years ago, is now in a wonderful building uh, in Melrose. You go in it. And you just, um, it's bright, it's cheery, it's welcoming. And we're privileged to have uh, Jim Henderson with us to tell us a little bit about his experiences, what the Lord's done in his life, what the Lord's done through him in India and at Siloam. Jim, we're really glad to have you with us. Thank you. I'm looking for a clock. There you go. Um, well, it is an incredible privilege to be here. I, I know some of you well. I know some of you less well than I wish. Is quoting Bilbo Baggins here. And <laughs> I know a lot of you way less than I wish. Um, I hope I didn't screw that up. But anyway, it is, it's a joy um, to be here. I've known Larry through his wife going way back to 1982 um, when I was at Vanderbilt in, in pediatrics. And um, this is just this is a privilege. And I just want to tell you, um, when Larry asked me to do this, um, I want to tell you what's come of it. I, I don't believe I am supposed to talk to you today. Um, I'm pretty sure of that. I believe I'm to talk to myself and let the word, which is living and active, do its work. Because what I think I'm supposed to share is what I need to hear today. And if you get anything from this through the word or through stories, that's between you and God. But this is not me talking to you, preaching to you. Thank goodness, I'm not a preacher. And um, I I have no lessons I can share with anybody here. I think I should be listening to you. So with that in mind, just, just silently pray and just ask God to take any scripture, any stories, and let him apply whatever he wants into your own heart. Okay? All right. Um... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. For it remains for the children of God a rest, a Sabbath rest, 
for those to enter in. For God rested from his work, and he invites us to rest from our work. And it's by faith alone that we enter that rest. Okay, so hold that, talking to myself, hold that in mind for a minute. All right, Larry asked me to share uh, my testimony and then frame what Siloam, S-I-L-O-A-M, Siloam Clinic is, and what we, my family and I, saw God do in India. So, I'm going to start with, uh, with a short story. I am in North India, 10 years ago, walking through the halls of this little old hospital with a South African doctor and several Indian doctors. And we're going bedside to bedside, and we end up coming to the bedside of a woman who had been admitted three days earlier to have an elective cholecystectomy. Woman had been met in the villages. Uh, she'd had all the signs of gallstones. She needed her gallbladder out, and a very gifted surgeon, an Indian colleague of mine, removed her gallbladder and then promptly left to go to some meeting down the mountain. We lived on a mountain. Literally as soon as he left, the pediatrician left behind on the team, went to her bedside just to do a post-op check, and she had a heart rate of about 30 beats per minute. And she was looking pale, and that's of note, somebody of Indian origin. She was very obviously pale. And did an EKG and found out that she had something called a complete heart block. Well, that means that one chamber is not talking to the other, and that's not good uh, for anybody who's not medical. <laughs> yeah, that's the bottom line. That's not good. Um, this woman, for three days, lay in that bed, barely able to eat, not able to get up or do anything else, and during what should have been a normal recovery, we thought she might end up dying. Well, we did everything we could with the limited resources we had. And on this third day, this final day, as we were making our rounds, we were just so dejected. We, we had done everything. I won't go into the details, but I, was, I had exhausted all my options. And as I started to turn to leave, the South African, who's a woman, looked at me and she said, she asked, she said, uh, have we prayed for her? Christian hospital, Christian doctors, missionary doctors, no, we hadn't prayed for her. And what came at that moment was this reminder of things that I had tasted over and over in the years that with the voice of the Lord, there's never condemnation, there's always invitation, and it's always an invitation to have faith, which is to rest in Him, and it always comes in combination with repentance. I think it was Martin Luther who said, repentance is a tear in the eye of faith. So we stopped, we looked at each other, kind of swallowed, little embarrassment, and we lay hands on her and we prayed. And left the bedside, went down the hall, we're doing our things with the next patients, and then we heard a shriek that would be something off of one of these scary movies, which I can't watch because those things disturb me. But it was, it was an otherworldly shriek. And in the halls of this old hospital, that echoes. And we thought, that's it. She's dead. But that kind of shriek doesn't usually go with somebody who's dying. You know, it's like Jesus' loud cry from the cross. That doesn't go with somebody who's exhausted and, and about to die. Something's different with that. So we, we kind of half walked, half ran back, and um, expecting to find her dead. And she was sitting up in bed, beautiful color, hurriedly stuffing her little travel bag with her clothes, beating it out of Dodge. She was getting out of there. 
And we went, wait, 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 wait. And to make a long story short, I got a quick EKG. I had a little portable machine. And you could have put her rhythm strip in a textbook. It was so perfect. 72 beats a minute, perfect, everything. Blood pressure was perfect. And we went, wait, wait, wait. But we could get no story. That woman was out of there. So three days earlier, we don't have a laparoscopic surgery there. We didn't. So she'd been cut open pretty big. She was limping, but she was gone. So we looked at each other and we went, what in the heck has happened? And we happened to look at the next bedside where a, another villager, a man, was sitting there as Indians do, up on their beds, squatting. You know, they stand or sit everywhere with their knees down. They can do this for hours. And he was just kind of placidly just eating his morning breakfast, which is vegetables and flatbread, and just kind of chewing. And we looked at him and we said, asked, said, did you know what just happened? And he said, Oh, yeah. And kept eating. And he said, well, um, would you enlighten us? Tell, us? tell us what happened. And this was so great. This is through an interpreter. But he said, you Westerners know nothing. <laughs> True. <laughs> and he said, so he said, please, please. And he said, after y'all left the room, we were there, and she came. I said, well, who's she? Well, the she he was referring to was an apparition, was a spirit being named after the goddess of these mountains. And we're talking, our place we were posted was in the foothills of the Himalayas. It's, the, it's literally the, the ground zero for Hinduism in North India. It's where a lot of it comes from, the, the beginnings of the Ganges River and these other rivers. And she said, this goddess of the mountains came for her and said, and we heard it, I'm coming for you now, I've hurt you, now I'm coming to finish you off. And as soon as it got probably as close as me to Dave, he said the thing stopped, it's what shrieked, and fled. And right then the woman's color picked up and she was fine and she was ready to get out of there. Okay? Now, take that story, <laughs> for whatever you think of that story, that's a weird one. Um, I saw that same sort of thing, I don't know, three times, five times, half a dozen times, whatever. Um, I saw God move and do things in India that I had never been prepared for, certainly never been taught about, and, I'm, and I, I never really knew what to do with that. So what I typically would do with that, though, was I'd put pressure on myself like, wow, what did I do? How did I make that happen? How can I make sure that happens again. And reliably, the very next day, there would be something like, I'd forgotten it was my wife's birthday, or um, I'd forgotten a good friend, or I had uh, been caught, literally caught, you know, with a, um, a wandering eye when a, a very beautiful woman would walk by, or a greedy or a very selfish thought. Um, just anything, you know, junk of my life, of our lives. And then would come this feeling of shame and guilt, deserved guilt usually, but, but a, a deeper guilt. And then this cycle of trying harder, reading the Bible more, going and praying more, waiting for that next miracle or whatever more, and seeing the same little cycle that would end in distance from the Lord. Now this is my story over and over and over, going way back. 
And one guy at this front table, Taylor Morris, knows me. I am just as classic of a codependent as you can get. Came from a family where alcohol had been kind of a big deal. My grandfather and, and then my dad had some kind of the non-drinking alcohol stuff. Grew up very, very sure that everything that I did was what mattered before the Lord. It's all about me. Went off to college, the perfect kid. To this day, I've still never smoked a joint. Probably the only guy in here. Um, <laughs> I know some of these Auburn guys. Um, <laughs> anyway, but I mean, you know, the, the classic good guy. You know, the shortstop, the not valedictorian, but studied. But all of it was about me. It wasn't about love for whoever. It wasn't about not doing things because I had a greater passion. It was doing everything in order to be acceptable. That's the way I related to my dad in, in the world. Well, in medical school, I um, had decided I needed to be a missionary doctor. And the reason was, if I was a missionary doctor, then God would probably overlook a lot of these things that weren't so hot, and I'd probably have a greater chance of getting on into heaven. That was literally my thinking. So I made it on into med school, was studying hard, and my whole world came to a stop one night 1979, near Christmas, when um, finally just the blinders were removed and I realized all these little rumblings inside were what really mattered. It wasn't what I did outwardly, it's who I was inwardly. And where I was inwardly was not ever going to make heaven on my own merit. And I knew that. I just knew it. And for once in my life, I kind of felt like less of a hypocrite. I actually felt less pressure. And I just was silent before the Lord this night, December 1979. And it was then that the words of an old Sunday school teacher, who I had despised in fourth grade, <laughs> came back, I believe applied by the Spirit of God. And it was, Jim, you can continue to try to earn my favor, or you can rest in the righteousness of the only perfect one. And... I was stunned. Nobody was with me. I had no Bible open, no sermon. That, those words came back. And I remember stopping and, and um, shocked. And I remember asking out loud in the room, what? And this sweetest voice with this presence of peace just said, don't you see, you don't need a friend, you need a savior. And I saw this vicarious atonement, this my junk given to him, his righteousness given to me, this great exchange. I just saw it so clearly, and I started crying right then. And I just said, man, I may be in trouble, but I'm no fool. That's what I want. That's what I need. And it's one of those stories where some of you have had this, the trees were greener the morning, the sky was bluer, it's like feet didn't touch the ground, and I thought, wow. But it wasn't another day before the same lifelong cycle of, I pictured God had kind of wiped my slate clean of all my junk, and now it was for me to get good stuff on there. Back to the pressure, back to the work, back to the earning. And that, again, has been my life story. So, now, putting it all together. Every step of the way, every day, I find that it is called today. There's no past. There's no looking ahead to the future. What God is saying, and this is in Hebrews and in Psalms and, I don't know, probably everywhere, but God said, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart 
as you did in the rebellion. But strive to enter into that rest, that place of rest, for God is rested from his work, and there remains a rest for the people of God. And this is today. It says it over and over, today, today. There is no yesterday. There is no tomorrow with God, in my opinion. It's right now. And the thing is, is God also said, Jesus said, my father is at work to this very day, and so am I. But yet it also says he has stopped. He's resting. He's rested from his work on the Sabbath day. And so my deal to just finish with is this. I could tell you other stories. I saw a woman raised from the dead. I saw Tibetans um, released from demons. Um, I saw young Indian doctors weep when they heard the same gospel, not after I shared it, but after I had screwed up over and over and over and just shared honestly who God was in my life and how my struggle was to rest in God's faithfulness and his righteousness. And I watched that young man spread the gospel through the whole hospital staff that I'd worked for so faithfully, never seen one convert, never seen anybody do anything. He led half the place to Christ in one day. So I, I've seen all this, and it remains today for me that there's a Sabbath rest. And this is not for somebody who's a non-Christian becoming a Christian. It is, but it's more than that. It is for every one of us here, and this is where I need to hear this today, it is for me right now to go, when I walk into the Siloam Clinic, and I see a, this is a true story, when I see a, um, um, a Buddhist, Bhutanese refugee, who, by the way, was wearing a shirt that said, I am second. This is so cool. <laughs> this is so cool. <laughs> and I almost asked him, what's that mean? I should have. Um, or, and this guy who has come over, and his family was subjected to forced removal from a country, lost everything he had, is now coming here with literally nothing. Or a Burmese family, these are three stories from just this week, Burmese family just come off the ship or the boat or the plane, whatever, just finding out, oh yeah, your child, the one you're counting on to be your bread earner, I think a, a rusty needle uh, was used to give a vaccine or a shot of penicillin back in the refugee camp because I need to tell you this HIV test is positive. Because the other child has cerebral palsy, um, a form of, of mental retardation from meningitis acquired soon after birth. The other child has some other problem and the husband and the wife will never learn the language. They're destined to work in a common factory just earning minimum wage for the rest of their lives so that their kids could be their future. So now we get to tell them this story. And then I walk in the next room, and there's a family from Iraq. Husband can barely talk. He's my age. He's an engineer, brilliant guy. Um, he's Because he's a 50-year-old man, he'll probably never learn English. But he had a brother abducted and murdered. Um, Shi'i, Sunni stuff going on in Iraq. He's got PTSD. He, like many of his other friends, will probably be back in my clinic one time curled up in a fetal position because the stress and the anxiety and PTSD and all will overwhelm him. Meanwhile, his wife doesn't know what to do, and his little kids are about to enter schools where gangs and other things are going to be after them. So they all get put in the worst schools. Go figure that. Anyway, so I work at a place called Siloam, and every day the question is, do I have enough? Can I make it happen? 
can I do something in these people's lives? And every day there remains for me a Sabbath rest to say, of course I don't, but you do. And of course we don't have faith to believe, but you, Jesus, are the faithful one. I can just rest in you and your faithfulness and then live that vicarious atonement of, because you're my righteousness, because you're the faithful one, I can just say, go God, what are you going to do? And then enter into the work. And there's a lot of work to be done. So in Nashville right now, seven, one out of seven people are foreign born. 100 and something, 170,000 have been born abroad. These people are from all over the world, 10,000 Egyptians, 6,000 Ethiopians. Um, just met the other day, 3,000, who was that? Uh, Bhutanese, and on the Kurdish, the Vietnamese, and on and on. They're everywhere. Many of these people will never have a native-born American enter their home, nor will be invited into a home. Many of these people are hungry to know God's love, and the question is, well, who's going to tell them? Who's going to love on them? And that's what Siloam Clinic is. So we bring together volunteers. We bring together people, medical, non-medical. We go out into communities, and we bring them into our clinic. And one by one, we try to love on people, have them interact with people who know and love the Lord, and just waiting to see what God's doing. So I have the greatest job in the world. Um, I have this privilege, but every day I need to remember I am only here because it's today and I am not here to earn my salvation or my righteousness or to go back into this cycle, this codependent cycle of it's all about me and my work. It's just the opposite. So I am free every day, like I was in that hospital over that woman's bedside, to go, nah, it, no, we haven't prayed. But you, you are the faithful one, and just stop and ask him. And um, I could tell you miracles from here too, but not for today. So... Um, be encouraged. Today there is a Sabbath rest for all of us. Let's enter in and let's encourage one another all the more as the day is approaching because that day is coming soon. And um, let's just see our Lord at work um, wherever you are. And I wish I could hear stories, but you all work in cool places, I'm sure. You all work in places where the Lord's needed and where you need to be men resting in the finished work of the Lord and then praying for him to do his thing. And I know, again, there'll be testimony after testimony if, if we could hear. So thank you for that. Um, where's Larry? Any, any questions or, there's Larry, any questions or challenges or things that somebody would want to share that just encourage the group? Okay. <laughs> I did not pay him for that. Um, <laughs> the, the question is, how is the clinic supported? Um, we were not a free clinic, but we charge an average of $5, which clearly doesn't cover our costs. So we exist, we write grants, we, we look for um, donations, corporations. Um, we earn every penny we can, but we also exist mostly, honestly, with donations. Um, and somebody asked me, if anybody's at all interested, um, a, a lady put together a gift catalog. You've seen these kind of things with a lot of good ministries. Uh, uh, Blood Water Mission, Heifer International, all these where you can give a designated gift that's a double gift. Well, when you think about this Christmas, if you think globally but realize locally the world has come to us, 
if you grab one of these, we're supported by donations. This would show people a way you could buy something that would be a gift for somebody and it would be a double gift. It would bless the refugees, the immigrants, and the folks that are very poor. And it would also um, maybe be a blessing to Siloam if people could do that. So, so donations, gifts, um, churches, individuals, like that. And these, I'll just leave these up here if anybody wants one. Thank you. Yeah, Taylor. Yeah, um, this catalog would give our address. He's asking how somebody could connect if they're interested. And we do need medical volunteers. We do need more non-medical volunteers. Um, and in the future, we're, as we're starting to go out in the communities more, we're looking for little teams that under a grassroots level led work in a community would be people who would be foot washers. It could be somebody to tutor, could be somebody to um, fix a pipe or two, and then definitely we'll be talking diabetes and hypertension in kitchens, around tables, in the communities where all these folks are living. And we would bring in people with any expertise in those areas. So um, on the website, it, again, it's like a silo, missile silo, S-I-L-O, and then A-M. It's from John 9, the pool of Siloam, where Jesus healed the blind man and sent him to wash. So that's us. Just look up Siloam on the website, and we could easily give you ideas how to volunteer. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, it's not far from here. So these communities of people, and again, I quickly, Bhutan, Burma, Congo, um, Iraq, Iran, Sudan, Cuba, I could just, I could name literally 70 countries. They're mostly settled in a corridor if you go up 65 to Old Hickory, go right and hit Nolensville Road, anywhere along Nolensville Road going in toward town and some toward Smyrna. But it's that whole south, southeast corridor there, I think it's just 37211, but anyway, they're everywhere. And there's people from all these countries kind of in apartment complexes here and there. Yeah. Some in Williamson County, too. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. The other day I went to a press, uh, an Episcopalian service, I'm not Episcopalian, and the thing that struck me was the priest would say things and the congregation would say, thanks be to God, over and over. And I thought, these guys got it right, thanks be to God. One of the things I'm really thankful for at this Thanksgiving and all year round is Siloam and Jim and other people who serve in Nashville. We live in a great place where Christians are gathered together to serve people in the name of God. Thanks be to God. Have a great week.